Matthew 27, verses 27 through 56. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put, on a, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great narrative. We thank you for this old story. We thank you, O oh Lord, for all that you have accomplished. Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for, for the joy that was set before him, 
followed the will of God, even to the point of and the pain of death. So, O oh Father, teach us this morning, O oh Father. Teach us this story afresh this morning. For many of us have heard this story many times. O oh Father, may it never become trite to us. May it never become commonplace to us. O oh Father, we look to you and we pray, O oh Father, that, Lord, you would teach us afresh this morning again the great truths that are here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, we find ourselves now nearly to the end of Matthew's gospel, and for a few of us here, it's been a long journey, hasn't it? Uh, it's been a couple of years getting through uh, all of these chapters of Matthew's gospel, and I thought this would maybe be a good place to uh, just, um, on a side, take a look ahead. Um, uh, next week, we'll probably back up a couple of verses to verse 55, because verses 55 and 56 are transitional verses that take us from the crucifixion of Christ uh, to the events of His burial and the events of His resurrection. And uh, I'm toying with taking, uh, uh, taking us all the way to uh, Matthew 28 and verse 15 uh, next week, although I wouldn't want to be locked into that because verses 62 through 66 uh, really have a lot to say about uh, Christian apologetics, and we could spend some time there, perhaps a sermon there. But uh, in the event that we take uh, verses 55 through 28, 15, then that'll be one sermon, and the Great Commission will be the final and last sermon of this, of this long study in uh, Matthew 28. So really, no matter how we dice it up, we're, uh, we're within uh, a couple, three weeks, a month uh, from completing this uh, study in Matthew's gospel. Uh, so what's next? What's next will be a study in, in Daniel. I've already begun studying Daniel and preparing to uh, preach a series of messages that will go through the uh, book of Daniel the same way we've gone through uh, the uh, gospel of Matthew. Um, all of God's word is, is exciting and uh, Daniel is certainly no exception to that. So I think we're I think we have a, a really exciting series ahead. So that's what's coming down the, uh, the pike. Now, in terms of this morning's message, this morning I, I really want to paint with a very broad brush and really take a look at the entire narrative this morning. Uh, the approach will be really to just go through these verses, offering a little bit of commentary as we go along, so that uh, hopefully by the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll begin to really feel the weight of what is taking place and we'll do this with the eye of what all of this says uh, about us and what all of this says for us. Uh, in Christian theology, historically, this narrative has been referred to as the humiliation of Christ. And the title of this morning's message is Christ's Humiliation, uh, what it says about us and what it means for us. Uh, so with the uh, I of that, let's begin with verse 27. Let's take a look. And in fact, we probably should back up to at least verse 26. Uh, for in verse 26, Pilate has uh, been attempting to release Jesus. We saw that last week. One of his attempts was to offer Barabbas uh, and Jesus uh, to give them a, uh, uh, to give the crowds a choice. Uh, the crowds 
choose Barabbas. And you'll recall last week, I didn't mention this in the sermon, but I did mention it just before the benediction, that the meaning of the name Barabbas is son of the father. And of course, Jesus is who? He's the son of the father. And according to many ancient manuscript traditions that uh, many ancient manuscripts uh, Barabbas went by the name of Jesus, Jesus Barabbas. So it's interesting that, uh, that Pilate offers the crowds to Jesus. Jesus Barabbas and Jesus who is called Christ. Barabbas meaning son of the Father. Jesus actually son of the Father. The crowds chose Barabbas. We are told in verse 26 that uh, having scourged Jesus, uh, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. Uh, most of us probably these days are aware of what uh, scourging involved. Uh, I don't want to go into a lot of the gory details of it because I think probably for the most part most of us know. Uh, but for the, the event that maybe somebody is not aware of it, it involved a whipping uh, with a whip that had uh, broken pieces of pottery or shards of steel uh, fastened to the very end of it. And uh, generally two Roman soldiers would take turns and they would beat the back of the, uh, of the party uh, who was being scourged. And uh, make no mistake about it, this actually, in many cases, a scourging was a death sentence in itself. Uh, not necessarily meant to be but it so brutalized its victim that uh, it, it actually, in many cases, proved to be fatal. So at this point, Jesus has been scorched. Uh, he has received wounds already that uh, perhaps in and of themselves uh, could have proven to be fatal. Uh, Jesus at this point, as we come to verse 27, is already very badly wounded. And uh, at verse 27, Pilate then releases Jesus to the custody of the soldiers who are given the detail of crucifying him. And in verses 27 through 31, we find uh, Jesus being subject to uh, brutal and cruel treatment at the hands of these soldiers. We're told that they take Jesus into the governor's headquarters and that they gather the whole battalion before him. It's easy to miss that. I've read this many times and missed that very point, that they gathered the whole battalion. Uh, some translations will say they gathered the whole cohort a cohort was one-tenth of a legion of soldiers. A legion of soldiers was approximately 6,000 men. Assuming that all of them were present, and Matthew's verbiage here does not necessarily imply that they were all uh, present, but all who were available at that time were present. But assuming they were all present, there were about 600 men. I think it's probably pretty safe to assume there were a couple hundred of them anyway. As we think... Uh, today about the subject of bullying. Uh, we can go to Christ if we've ever been bullied or we're ever finding ourselves being bullied. And as adults, we can find ourselves being bullied in many ways. Uh, as we pray uh, to Christ for help, uh, we can understand He is no stranger to being bullied. He's taken in by these soldiers. Verse 28, they strip Him. Literally, they strip Him naked. They put a scarlet robe on Him. Verse 29, they twist together this mock crown of thorns. They place it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand. Uh, the reed would be a mock scepter, if you will. They're making fun of him. If you're a king, well, here's a scepter. A king should have 
A uh, king should have a scepter. They put a reed in his hands. And then they, they kneel before him in verse 29, and they mock him, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 30, they spit on him, and they take the reed, and they strike him on the head. Um, that would have driven the, the thorns into his skull. And when they had mocked him, they strip him of the robe, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Uh, they put him back to the way they found him. Now, all of this is going on outside of the public eye. The public is not aware of this. Then when we come to verse 32, we read these words, and they went out, or as they went out. I think that we should probably understand these words, that they're going outside of the city gates. Uh, as they go outside of the city, Jesus is crucified outside of the city. That is significant. Uh, he is... He is defiled, if you will. He is to be defiled. And he is taken outside of the city gates. There they find a man uh, by the name of uh, Simon. And uh, the ESV renders, they compelled this man to carry his cross. Um, there, there's something going on here. Uh, we shouldn't think of this as, um, as the, um, uh, they, they approach Simon. They say, Simon, can we ask a favor of you? Would you... Uh, would you carry this uh, crossbeam? For it was the responsibility of the one being executed to carry his crossbeam to the place uh, of the crucifixion. And uh, here Jesus manages, scholars tell us, that he manages to carry the crossbeam probably about a half a mile uh, uh, before Simon picks it up. Um, as badly beating as, beating as he is, it's amazing that he's able to do this. But uh, Simon is actually uh, called upon to carry this crossbeam. And if we had lived in this culture, if we were approached by Roman soldiers uh, to do something of this nature, you really didn't have a choice in the matter. Uh, we could be on our way to a job interview, and um, a Roman soldier who has a package or something, they want delivered up the, uh, up the road a few villages away, uh, could call you aside and say, here, I want this, I want this package taken um, uh, to a certain village. Well, guess what? Uh, you're going to be late for your job interview. And this adds meaning. I mean, we've seen this thing before. Some of you will recall all the way back in Matthew chapter 5. And in verse 41, when Jesus is speaking about retaliation, and he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Uh, that's strange. That, that, that text is kind of strange to us, but it wouldn't have been strange to the first audience. They would have known exactly uh, what he was talking about. Here, Simon is forced to go uh, a mile, if you will. I don't know that it was literally a mile. I'm not sure how far it was, but Simon is forced to carry his, uh, the crossbeam of Christ. And he carries it to a place, we're told in verse 33, a place called Golgotha, which means a place of skull. Uh, some conjecture that, it's, uh, that the place literally had a, a rock or a mound that looked like a skull. Uh, others say, no, it, is, it got its name simply because it's uh, a place where execution took place. I really don't know what's the, uh, which one is uh, true or not, uh, but it's, it's somewhat trivial to the overall narrative. At verse 34, they offer him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Uh, there are actually uh, a couple of interpretations of that verse. Uh, one you've probably heard before, that the wine was mixed with a narcotic, and that this was an act of, an act of compassion. 
that's offered to Jesus in order to numb some of the pain just before he's crucified. And uh, those who follow that interpretation will usually say that Jesus refused it so that he would experience the full brunt of the pain. Uh, he, his purpose was to die in place uh, of sinners and he was to undergo the full force of the pain, the full experience of the pain. However, there's another interpretation I think maybe has a little bit more weight and that, it, that this wine was offered to him as yet another act of cruelty towards him that the wine was actually mixed with uh, bitter herbs or a bitter substance that actually rendered it uh, really undrinkable. And uh, as he put it to his lips, as it went into his mouth, it would have left a horrible taste in his mouth uh, and left him with that. And I, I think there's a lot of weight to that. If you, you don't need to turn there, but uh, Psalm 69 is a verse that's quite interesting, and I think it sheds light on this. Psalm 69 and verse 21 reads this way. Um, and, and Psalm 69, by the way, has many allusions to Christ. It says um, in verse 21 that they gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And we know that a little bit later in the story, Jesus is given sour wines, put on a sponge, and it's raised up to his lips. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, quite possibly, whichever interpretation you take, quite possibly... Uh, this was just another act of cruelty uh, towards Jesus. In verse 37, over his head they put a charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Uh, we know that they nailed this uh, above the cross. Uh, this also was commonplace. Uh, crucifixion was a public execution. It was public. Uh, it was a public form of punishment. It was reserved only for the most hardened criminals, and it was, in essence, made to say, listen, if any of you are thinking about pulling any of these stunts, then you need to take a good look at the characters who have gone before you. It was meant to restrain evil. So the, uh, the one being ex executed would have a plaque that sometimes would be hung over their necks, if you will, uh, or carried alongside of them, and it would identify them and it would identify the charge. Uh, here the plaque read, uh, Jesus, King of the Jews. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Uh, verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Uh, the word translated robbers there could be translated insurrectionists. And there are some scholars that, that uh, do believe that these robbers actually were in cahoots with Barabbas. I don't think we have any way of knowing this for sure, but there is a lot of evidence that suggests that uh, uh, they were in cahoots with Barabbas and that originally this cross that, is, uh, that has been prepared was prepared for Barabbas uh, and not for, for Jesus. Uh, either way, um, Jesus is crucified uh, between these two robbers. And you'll notice um, really... Um, Matthew doesn't say a whole lot about the crucifixion itself. Um, it just simply says then uh, two robbers, you know, that simply he was crucified. Um, that's all that Matthew really offers. Uh, he doesn't really go into a lot of the physical stuff that a lot of times we go into. And, and perhaps the reason for that is everybody understood it. Everybody had a good idea of what this involves. Um, 
Unfortunately, we live in a time when, when the crucifixion is preached, a lot of times we focus only on the physical part. Uh, I, this morning, do not mean to diminish the physical uh, pain and the physical things that were done to Jesus in any way. I think when we preach the cross, we need to preach both the physical pain that he endured, but we also need to preach the emotional and soul suffering that Jesus endured as well. And we need to understand that it indeed was the suffering of the soul that was the most agonizing to Christ. And uh, we're going to see that really uh, from this point onward. Of course, we've seen this in many other places. But you'll notice that in verse 39, Jesus again becomes um, the subject of scorn again. Uh, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. That's an interesting thing, you know. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you'd just come down from the cross, then we'd believe in you. The chief priests and scribes holler that at Jesus. But in actuality, Jesus proves that he is the Son of God by staying on the cross, doesn't he? He proves he is who he says he is by staying on the cross. Could Christ have come down from the cross if he would have wanted to? Absolutely. But listen to this. He didn't want to. Because he couldn't save himself and save us, could he? Could you imagine enduring that? The chief priests and the scribes come by with their their comments, which are a little bit more theologically sophisticated, just as painful. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And we'll believe in him then. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. I think that one would really be painful. If he trusts in God, let God deliver him now. We'll see that in a few minutes. We're told in verse 44, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And that brings us to verse 45. We're told now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The, the time frame begins at six in the morning. That's the first hour. So uh, at the sixth hour is going to be noon. And the ninth hour is going to be three o'clock. And Mark in his gospel tells us that Jesus is crucified. He's actually crucified right around uh, nine o'clock in the morning at the third hour. So he endures the crucifixion for about three hours. And then all of a sudden, at high noon, the sun gives up its light. And I mentioned this at a Bible study on Wednesday. I forget what point we were making, but why does the sun give up its light? It's because at this point in time, the sin debt of those whom Christ came to, came to save is now being imputed or credited to Christ. Christ at this point in time is now undergoing God's judgment, His wrath, and His fury 
for the sins of his people. Amos, chapter 8, you don't need to turn there. But Amos, chapter 8, and verse 9, speaks of this, sheds light on this. Where we read these words. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And the context of, of this passage is judgment. And Deuteronomy 28 and verse 29 is another verse. You, you don't need to turn there. I want to get you going all over the place this morning, but just listen to the, just listen to the verse as I read it to you. The context of the Deuteronomy passage is Israel is being prepared to go into the promised land. And... Uh, uh, blessings for obedience are being announced and curses for disobedience are being announced. And this comment falls under the second heading, curses for disobedience. And in verse 29, one of the curses for disobedience is this, you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually and there shall be no one to help you. This idea of judgment and darkness coinciding. And of course, these words in their original context are spoken to national, to Israel as a nation. They're spoken within the Mosaic covenant and the Mosaic administration. Uh, but nevertheless, there are spiritual principles here that if I might digress just for a moment, we would do really good to pay attention to. The whole idea that we can find happiness and blessing while rebelling against God is very clearly um, nonsense. Notice the wording, you'll grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually as a, as a nation as we, as we continually to drive God out of every corner and nook and cranny. Uh, we do become less successful at everything we do, don't we? That's a sermon for another day. But back to the sixth hour. Darkness comes over all the lands. And we're told about the ninth hour. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's quite a statement, isn't it? Notice how Jesus addresses God. Everywhere else, Jesus addresses God as who? Father. But not here. He says, my God, my God. And notice what he says next. And again, we should see this as the human nature of Jesus speaking to, to God himself. He says, why have you forsaken me? In other words, why... Why have you abandoned me? I heard Dr. R.C. Sproul speak about this a number of years ago, many years ago, and I've never forgot it. And he was speaking about this very verse. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and there's darkness all around, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is happening? What is happening is the, that intimacy that Jesus has enjoyed 
As Psalm 22 makes clear that Jesus is enjoyed from the very womb, that intimacy has now become broken. As Dr. Sproul once said, it's because Jesus at this point in time becomes a vile stench to such a degree that the Father now has to take His eyes off of His beloved Son and look elsewhere. He can't look upon Christ as He hangs there with the charges of all of His people now credited to His account. I would submit to you that this is the very high point of Christ's agony, not the physical pain, but this anguish of soul that Jesus endures here as he experiences the very wrath of God that is meant for sinners like you and I. Some of the bystanders, verse 47 here, it said, so this man is calling Elijah. Why would they think that? Well, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli. So this kind of sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? I think that's the best, I guess the best uh, uh, interpretation. In verse 48, one of them at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, just as Psalm 69 and verse 21 stated. They put it on a reed, they gave it to him to drink. Others are conjecturing, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And then in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. By crying out with that loud voice, we understand Jesus was conscious through the whole thing. He didn't just go into a coma or lose consciousness and then breathe his last. He's, he's conscious all the way to the very end. Luke offers us a verse of such hope. Luke in chapter 23 in his, in his account of these things says that Jesus says, my father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And why is that so significant? It's because of the words that go just before that. Words that we would do very well to remember. The words, it is finished. It is finished. The atonement for the filth and the sins of Christ's people is now taken care of. And even on that cross, while Jesus is on that cross, he is then reunited with the Father. He doesn't say, my God, into, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says, my Father, oh Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I lay down my life. I'll offer you my personal belief on this. I believe that Jesus died at the exact second he chose to die. I believe that because Jesus said, no one takes, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down. My personal belief on this is that after it was finished, Jesus then indeed chose the exact second when he went through the doorway and into his father's arms. And he's letting us know this by yelling out with a loud cry. If we skip down to verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, we're told that they're filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. 
The Tsarturian was probably one of the ringleaders of the brutality that took place just six hours earlier in Pilate's headquarters. Now they're making a profession of faith. Okay. We've looked at this narrative. We've taken a very broad brush. Many of these verses that we've looked at, we could preach sermons on. In fact, some of these verses we could preach a whole series of sermons on. We've looked at, a whole, we've looked at the whole narrative as a whole. What does this say about us? Well, for starters, when we look at the pain, we look at the extreme that Jesus had to suffer, we're reminded of something. In fact, we're enlightened of something. We're enlightened of how deep our sin debt really is. God is a, a just God. He is a righteous God. He would never punish sin more harshly than what it deserves, would He? Never. But look at what Jesus received. And you'll also be looking at what we deserve. And then the cross becomes a mirror, doesn't it? And we begin to understand what is Jesus doing on the cross? He's taking our place. It's easy to look at this. It's easy to, as I've said earlier in, in previous messages, it's easy to look at this and think, you know, that pilot, I don't understand that pilot. Or those crowds, how could they ask for Barabbas and not Jesus? Or those chief priests and elders and scribes, what's up with them? And these soldiers, we could add them to the list now. How could they be so cruel? And the bystanders and the passers-by, how could they all be so cruel? How could all of them kill Jesus. I have an excerpt here from the life of one of my favorite preachers. And it's an, expert, it's an excerpt of, a, of an early experience that he had under the conviction of sin. It's a little bit lengthy. I'll try to animate the reading so that you, so that you get the effect of it. He writes, There was a day... As I took my walks abroad, when I came hard by a spot for ever graven upon my memory, for there I saw this friend with a capital F, my best, my only friend, murdered. I stooped down in sad affright and looked at him. I saw that his hands had been pierced with rough iron nails. And his feet had been rent in the same way. There was misery in his dead countenance, so terrible that I scarcely dared to look upon it. His body was emaciated with hunger. His back was red with bloody scourges, and his brow had a circle of wounds about it. Clearly one could see that these had been pierced by thorns. I shuddered, for I had known this friend full well. He never had a fault. He was the purest of pure, the holiest of holy. Who could have injured him? For he never injured any man. All his life long he went about doing good. He had healed the sick. He had fed the hungry. He had raised the dead. For which of his works did they kill him? 
He had never breathed out anything but love. And as I looked into the poor sorrowful face, so full of agony and yet so full of love, I wondered who could have been a wretch so vile as to pierce hands like these. I said within myself, where can these traitors live? Who are these who could have smitten such a one as this? Had they murdered an oppressor, we might have forgiven them. Had they slain one who had indulged in vice or villainy, it might have been his desert. Had it been murdered and a, a murderer and a rebel or one who had committed sedition, we would have said, bury this corpse. Justice has at its last given him his due. But when thou wast slain, my best, my only beloved, where lodge these traitors? Let me seize them. They shall be put to death. If there be torments that I can devise, surely they shall endure them all. Oh, what jealousy, what revenge I felt. If I might but find these murderers, what would I not do with them? And as I looked upon that corpse, I heard a footstep. And I wondered where it was. I listened. And I, com I clearly perceived that the murderer was close at hand. It was dark. I groped about to find him. I found that somehow or other, wherever I had put my hand, I could not meet with him, for he was nearer to me than my hand would go. At last, I put my hand upon my breast. I have thee now, said I, for lo, he was in my own heart. The murderer was hiding within my own bosom, dwelling in the recesses of my inmost soul. Ah, oh, then I wept indeed, that I, in the very presence of my murdered master, should be harboring the murderer, and I felt myself most guilty while I bowed over his corpse and sang that plate of him, "'Twas you, my sins, my cruel sins, his chief tormentors were. Each of my crimes became a nail, in unbelief, the spear." Who murdered Jesus? We did. What does this say about us? It's our cruel sins that put him there. Okay. What does this mean for us? We could summarize it with one word. Salvation. Salvation. Look at verse 51 with me. And behold, the curtain of the temple was what? It's torn in two from the top to the bottom. Don't look for any secondary causes for this. This is the miraculous hand of God grabbing that curtain and ripping it in two. What was the curtain? The curtain was that which separated the common folks from the very presence of God in the temple. Beyond the curtain was the holy place. Beyond the curtain was the place where God, uh, was, where God was said to dwell. When Christ breathed His last 
that curtain is torn in two. I haven't wanted you to turn to all these other passages because I'm going to ask you to turn to a couple right now. Keep your place in Matthew 27. And I've one more thing to show you and I'll bring this to a close. Turn with me to Hebrews. Just turn towards the back of the Bible. To Hebrews chapter 4. Three passages I want to show you from Hebrews. The first one, if you're using the church's Bible, you'll find on page 1003, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. For the sake of contents, we'll go back to verse 14. And you want to write these verses down and meditate on them. As we think about the curtain being torn in two, let's think of that as we read these verses. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now notice verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to where? The throne of grace. Where is the throne of grace? The Israelite reading these passages would have immediately thought in the holy place beyond the curtain. The place where only the high priest was allowed to go and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But the temple curtain has been torn in half, hasn't it? Turn with me to chapter 6 and verse 19. Really, for most of you, just be turning the page. Chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters where? Into the inner place behind what? The curtain. Turn with me to chapter 10 as we look at verses 19 and following. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, confidence to enter where? The holy places, the places beyond the curtain. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What does all this mean? What does all this mean for us? It means that through Christ Jesus we now have access to heaven. Through Christ Jesus we have access to heaven. When you, when you bow your, your head and you pray, don't take it for granted. Let none of us take that for granted. We don't need to go to a priest today. We don't need to go to anyone else today. Because Christ has opened a way for us that through Christ... When you bow your heads to pray, you have direct access 
to heaven, to the Father who is enthroned in the heavens. J.C. Ryle, the great preacher, I have one of his commentaries right here. Great commentary, very simple commentary, easy to understand on the book of Matthew. If you see it somewhere, buy it and read it. He says that when Jesus gave up his spirit, when he passed through the doorway of, of death and into the arms of the Father, he eradicated and made obsolete that ceremonial law, all of the sacrifices and sacrificial systems and uh, the idea of, uh, of the, pre -Levit the Levitical priesthood and the whole idea of, of offering these sacrifices to get right with God and all of the ceremonial purifications and all of that involves has all been eradicated. All of that pointed to Jesus. J.C. Ryle goes on to say that we would no more uh, set up a priesthood today uh, than we would light a candle in the noonday sun. Why would we do such a thing when we have access, direct access to Father ourselves? That's why in the Protestant church we don't have any priests. We have pastors, ministers. My job is to never get in your way and be between you and Jesus. My job is to be used by Christ, to lead you to Christ. My job is to be used by Christ to enable you to grow in Christ. But I do you a great disservice if I ever get in the way of that. The temple curtain has been torn in two. If you've got faith in Christ this morning, you've got access to heaven and a salvation that is real. And as we look at the cross and we see what it means for us, what it means for us is your sins, regardless of how conscious you are of your sins right now at this particular moment, if you're in Christ Jesus, those sins have been washed away. Those sins have been taken away. That sin debt has been paid. Isn't that great news? It's called the good news. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great news. We thank you, O Lord, for the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Lord, for our Savior. And, o Father, as we think of these things, Father, we do cry tears. We cry, tear out of, we cry tears out of one eye that, uh, Lord, it, it's a horrible thing that you had to endure for us, O Father. It's a horrible thing that Christ had to endure. For, O Father, you had to watch your beloved suffer unimaginably and oh Christ you suffered for us unimaginably but out of the other aisle father we cry tears of joy for you accomplished that great salvation you've accomplished these things for us we now have access to you even now as we each bow our heads and by the faith that you have given us oh father we can have direct access direct access to you we can know that you hear us we can know that you love us. We can know that your arms are around us. Only because of Christ and only through Christ. Press these things upon us, O oh Father, that as we go forth from this place, we'll be mindful of Christ's humiliation. And we'll be mindful of what it says about us. We put you there, O oh Lord. We confess it. But we'll also be mindful of what it means for us. 
we are new creatures, washed and given access to the throne above. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.